before we get started, we yeah. want to chat about Finish Line at Macy's. What? They have the latest looks from the hottest brands. Nike, Adidas, Ooh. Skechers, Woo. Converse. Yeah. That's just to name a few. You can shop for yourself or your loved ones all in one place. Right now, they're having their end of season sale. Woo! Deals up to 65% off, which is just crazy awesome. Crazy? Crazy. Awesome. Awesome. Go check out your nearest Macy's store to see it for yourself. Or go to macy's.com slash finish line. Crazy awesome. Warning. Binge mode contains adult content. The Shape of Water, the movie we will be talking about today, is a film about a woman who carries on a torrid sexual relationship with an Amazonian fishman. So if that's not your thing, check out Bachelor Party. Gotta be honest, I have higher hopes for Eliza and Fish Guy than I do for Ari and whoever he picks. <laughs> Same here. And now, binge mode. When he looks at me, the way he looks at me, he doesn't know what I lack. Or how I am incomplete. He sees me for what I am as I am. Whoa! Woo! And welcome to Binge Mode. I'm Mallory Rubin, deputy editor of TheRinger.com. Joining me today, now that he's finished boiling his daily batch of eggs. Every day, I like to boil some eggs. That's it. High protein diet. I do stuff in between while I'm waiting for him to cook. You have a very specific bathroom routine. (laughs) It's Ringer staff writer and your maester, Jason Concepcion. The egg timer is ticking down. Yes, it is. But before we peel today's yield, a quick reminder. Every Thursday on Binge Mode Weekly, we'll be diving deep into the topic that's obsessing us at the moment. And this spring, we'll be diving into Binge Mode Harry Potter. Bum, bum, bum. Yes. You'll be able to find both Weekly and Harry Potter on the same feed, so stay subscribed on iTunes, Stitcher, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcast. And we'll be joining Bill Simmons and Shea Serrano for a Binge Mode slash Rewatchables crossover live show event on Friday Night Lights and Varsity Blues. At Largo at the Coronet in Los Angeles on Wednesday, January 24th. Check the Ringer Twitter feed or our Twitter feeds for a link to buy tickets. And speaking of Twitter, guys, follow us on Twitter at binge underscore mode, a.k.a. the underscore. At binge underscore mode. We intend to test the full power of the fish emoji this week, plus the eggplant emoji. Eggplant emoji plus the fish (laughs) emoji. I can't wait. Truly cannot wait. On today's binge mode. Yeah. We're diving deep. Right it's into a just, tank of salt-enriched water. Mm. <laughs> or a bathtub. Sure. Your choice. <laughs> to discuss Guillermo del Toro's award season darling? Yeah, sure. The Shape of Water. Who knew that fish fucking was so <laughs> popular and critically acclaimed? Loved by all. Yeah. Except for Amanda Dobbins, whose take, I no. believe, is and out Chris on Ryan. beasts. And Chris Ryan, <laughs> who just shakes his head glumly. Requisite. Spoiler warning for today's binge. As always, we will be going deep on details from this film and from other pieces of art that are, you know, heavy on interspecies romance. Sure. So grab your pack of candy, give your hands a scrub, because it's time to explore the shape of water and the elements of fairy tales. 
Jason. Yeah. If I can quote Strickland. Yes. Fuck. You are a god. Thank you very much. And that is why I am certain that you can help refresh us on what actually happened in The Shape of Water by taking a quick trip down our very own King's Road, or in this case, just a, you know, quick tap dance down the hall, a quick swim through the docks. Eliza, a mute woman, works as a janitor at a top-secret facility in the 1960s in Baltimore. Baltimore! Baltimore! Beautiful city where everyone loves to live. <laughs> People love it there. I love it there. I know you do. Her best friends are Zelda, played by Octavia Spencer, her co-worker, and Giles, Richard Jenkins, her neighbor and a closeted gay man and alleged cat lover. I say alleged because... He doesn't really spill too many tears when one of his cats gets uh, devoured by the fish man. Spoiler. I did not like that part of the no. movie. One day, a large metal container containing a mysterious amphibian man fish creature called the Asset is delivered to the facility under the supervision of Colonel Strickland, played by Michael Shannon. Strickland is tasked with discovering the secrets of the creature's singular biology, but really he just wants to torture him. One day, the creature attacks Strickland. Eliza and Zelda are ordered to clean up the creature's containment area. Eliza and the creature meet. She begins visiting him in secret, feeding him hard-boiled eggs. Delicious. Playing records for him. Music lover, this guy. They develop a special bond, a romantic bond, a sexual bond. Little does she know that Strickland plans to vivisect her boyfish. After witnessing Strickland torturing the creature, Eliza hatches a plan to break him out. Which she does with the help of Giles, Zelda, and Dr. Hofstetler, a scientist and Russian spy who also has a soft spot for the creature. Elisa keeps the creature in her bathtub and they fuck several times. Spoiler. She plans to release the fishman back into the ocean when the rains come. But Strickland, after torturing Hofstetler, discovers her plan. On the docks, he shoots Eliza and her boyfish, but the creature heals himself. He kills Strickland, turns Eliza's voice box scars into gills, and they live happily ever after. In carnal bliss under the waves. We think. We think. We, we hope. We imagine. We hope. I hope so. I can hear copy chief Craig Gaines's voice in my head saying, guys, technically, they only had two sex scenes in the movie, which would be they fuck a couple of times, not several. Thanks, Craig. Okay. Well, <laughs> who knows what happened off screen? Does, it's like, it just feels like the way, and we'll get to this more. Just the way she was walking down the hallway in the facility after yeah. with a real pep in her step. Yeah. Feels like it was more than two. I feel like a couple times. Also, this Fishman, like one, just to get it out of the way and, and be like, this is how you do it, Fishman. Mm -hmm. Right. And then you're good. <laughs> Mel. Yeah. If I told you about her, mm -hmm. the princess without a voice, what would I say? That question gets us to this episode's big idea. So let's cut right to the core of it by sticking it with the pointy end of the fish guy's ovipositor, which is housed somewhere in his lower abdomen behind what we imagine to be a pouch. We did not get nearly enough information. <laughs> is it a hatch? Is it a pouch? Is it a sleeve? Also, especially in a film- Where does it come from? Featuring an artist as yeah. a central character, I need a sketch. Draw that dick. Like, I need a detailed see it. sketch- can about how it? this works. The dividing theme <laughs> of this episode of Binge Bone Weekly is the shape of water and the elements of fairy tales. Shape of Water has been described as an adult fairy tale. So what does that mean? It means she fucks the fish <laughs> she man. She does fuck the Jason. fish man. <laughs> the way I think about it is it's a style of storytelling that is extremely simple. Characters exist as archetypes or symbols for other things, and they don't necessarily act in the way that a fleshed-out character would act. They do things 
because the plot requires them to do it, because the overall point of a fairy tale is some kind of lesson, some kind of moral lesson, a fable, a parable. You typically find these in children's literature. There's various numbers of fairy tales that I'm sure all of us can remember. And they also mean like far-fetched legends and the kind of stories that begin once upon a time. There are numerous things that happen in The Shape of Water that if you're not necessarily prepared for that fairy tale tone, you'd be like, why is this person doing this? This is dumb. It's, I think, can be helpful to almost like visualize a spectrum. Right. Where you have a pure fable, you know, on the far extreme, and you have very fleshed out, detailed, hardcore sci-fi and fantasy storytelling right. on the other extreme. Right. And fairy tales are somewhere between those two, but definitely closer to the fable yes. side of the spectrum where that archetypal action, not only for the characters, but for the ideas, allows a message to be effectively conveyed, even if it isn't as simply boiled down as here's the moral of the story. Right. It's here's the idea. Right. Here's the message. Here's what you're supposed to be thinking about. And in this story, in The Shape of Water, what are our characters, what are our archetypes really representing? Right. They're representing Outsiders. Yes. And the point you just made about how characters who are functioning as archetypes more than as fully rounded, fully realized people sometimes behave in ways that are not necessarily inherently logical, right. but ultimately drive the plot. There are myriad examples of that so in many. this story. And we can just quickly talk about a couple because it's they're effective frameworks for understanding how the story as a whole functions. Right. Let's discuss your favorite, which is Eliza's calendar. <laughs> yeah. So listen, not to nitpick a story about a woman who fucks a fish man, but <laughs> after Eliza sneaks the fish man out of the facility with the help of Giles and Zelda, she realizes that she has to release him to the sea. She can't keep him in the bathtub forever. Right. There's only so much room in that apartment <laughs> to store salt. Right. And she's already flooded the bathtub once. Right. Thus almost surely destroying the structure of her apartment and, and almost destroying the cinema below. Also, again, don't really want to talk about this because it's extremely upsetting to me, but he did eat, he eat a cat. her neighbor's cat, one of his cats. Yes, and this is a Del Toro movie, so it is graphic. Horrible. I was so glad. Jason saw this movie before me, and thank the gods he knew that it was worth spoiling that plot point to warn That's me. Because as you guys know, I love an animal. I love That's a cat. Right. And I, I could not have handled that without warning. Um, it is interesting, though, that she makes those decisions before some of those things right. happen. You know, She's got that written out from the very beginning. Right. And one of the limitations of that is almost that like you find yourself, as you're rooting for them, and as you're watching them fall in love with each other, you want her to say and grapple a little bit more seriously with the idea of what following through on that plan yes. means. What is like, it? Like what comes after? The only time it's really discussed is when Giles is like, he made my hair grow back. Right. We can't let him go yet. Right. We gotta keep him around <laughs> gotta for a little longer. My hair is not all the way back. Yeah, so Eliza writes rain docks on the calendar in her apartment. And Helpful it's, reminder. And as soon as it happens. I can see the, the Google calendar push <laughs> notification now. As soon as she does it. Succinct, clear. In red pencil. You're like, red, oh, well, red. Strickland is gonna come and see this and know exactly where to find them. But that's important because you need that showdown between the villain and the heroes right. at the moment of crisis. And there are various other things. There's a part where Eliza and Zelda are talking to some of the other workers at the facility and they're smoking by the loading docks and there's a, there's <laughs> <Yeah>. a security <laughs> camera there. 
And a man who's smoking cigarettes says, yeah, we love to smoke here because it's a blind spot. The camera can't see here. And it's like, oh, yeah, well. We just tilt it up. Right. Here's how they get the fish man out. And if you ever need to tilt it up, I've just told you that it tilts up. It tilts up. You just tilt it up (laughs) and they can't see anything. One of my favorite examples of this is when Dimitri, after not only being shot in the gut, which Strickland helpfully points out, that's a death sentence. That's it. You're done. You're done. Nothing that you say or do can save your life. No medical treatment will cure you in this scenario, in this world. You've also been shot literally in the face. And Strickland, in one of the movie's more overt water and fish imagery is everywhere moments, (laughs) sticks his finger through one of the mouth holes and fish hooks him and pulls him around. Dimitri tells Strickland... For some reason. ...who thinks that the theft of the asset was carried out by Russian... Operatives. Dimitri could easily give up his Russian counterparts. Or he could say nothing because as previously established, he's going to die anyway right. and nothing he says will change that. <laughs> right. And yet he chooses to laugh maniacally and say, my dude, yeah, they just clean. Why did he do that? He did it, of course, because the function of that moment is that it allows Strickland to connect the final dots and go find Zelda and then Eliza. But it is totally illogical that Dimitri, who risked everything, (laughs) he risked so much that he had to request extraction from America where he's operating as a spy because he believed in helping Eliza extract Fish Guy. He wanted to save Fish Guy. And now he just doesn't- Fish man? Care? Fish dude? Fish- Fish bro? Fish bro. <laughs> That's the sound the fish man makes. But again, we largely accept that because it is in a fairy tale right. more important to drive the plot forward. And it's interesting to think about contrasting that to how we really parse and assess, again, like a true fantasy or sci-fi story. You know, we talked about this a couple weeks ago on the Ask the Underscore episode of Binge Mode Weekly, which you guys should all listen to if it's you great, haven't yet. Episode. Someone asked us, basically, what do you guys like look for in a fantasy story that you love? What, yes. what makes you opt in or opt out? And one of the things we talked about is that you can't have a deus ex machina. You can't have things occurring in the course of the story that give you a reason to opt out because they don't make sense. You know, you need in a fantasy story, in a sci-fi story, to understand not only how people are behaving and why. Why the world works like that. What are the rules of the universe? How do people interact with each other, with their own decisions? What are the consequences? What do they know and how can they use that information? You don't necessarily need to be thinking like that here. You need to be thinking about the message. And the message is that these outsiders are going to unite and find something in each other that the world has never given them. That's right. Now, the thing that carries this movie for me, which I liked. I know we're criticizing it, but I like the movie. Because I just love fish fucking. No, but I also liked the movie. Yeah, I did I not think it was like a masterpiece, but I, I enjoyed it. I think Pan's Labyrinth is, for me, Del Toro's masterpiece. We both love Hellboy, Hellboy 2. It's great. In which, by the way, Doug Jones plays literally... Plays Abe Sapien, <laughs> an ichthyo-human who character? is like a captain of that and is a amphibian man-human who Do a head-to-head Google image search, though. <laughs> it is really wild. For those two Doug Jones characters in these Del Toro movies. 
But the thing that carries this movie, which in other hands would be almost a comedy, is that it, it was made with such obvious love by Del Toro. Yes. He loves these characters, wants passionately to tell this story, and he tells it in a very singular way with stories within stories. Eliza lives upstairs from a movie theater, obviously a passion of Del Toro's. Strickland tells stories in order to explain what he's doing. There's just stories within stories, movies within movies. At one point, Eliza dreams of dancing with the fishman in a musical. Singing, finding Singing. her voice. That's right. And so that kind of care for a story that is not necessarily my cup of tea is really what carried this for me. Do you think it would be a fair assessment if other people basically took that same idea but used it to make the opposite point, which is he cares about this mm. so much. Why isn't it landing a little more fully when Chaos and Collins, the ringer's superlative film critic, wonderful, wrote about this movie earlier in December, he ended the piece by talking specifically about Del Toro and his vision and his craft. And he said he hasn't made a movie as interesting as his interests. Yeah, and I thought that point. was a really sharp way of stating it and an interesting way of framing and thinking about it. So I don't know if we necessarily felt that way about it, but it is a totally unique idea. Like it has so many roots in these fairy tale archetypes that we've talked about, but how many fairy tales have this specific spin. And so his ability to apply that spin and to explore the things he wants to explore and answer the questions he wants to answer are what make the movie unique. But is the execution as compelling as the idea? Yeah, I'm not sure. And fairy tale structure, that method of telling a story, has its limitations. Right. What makes it an adult fairy tale, essentially it's an extremely simple, almost childlike story that includes sexual content. That's what makes it adult and extreme violence. Although you could find numerous fairy tales that have really kind of harrowing scenes of violence in them. I will say Strickland ripping off his own fingers, his rotting fingers, which we will talk about a bit more later. Yeah. Very unpleasant. We're talking about the 1960s. It's the peak of white male culture. Right. Everyone has a house in the suburbs, with two cars in the driveway. You know, we've won the world, essentially. World War II is over. The United States won. Booming economy. Space race is on. The enemy at this point is the Soviets in a totally different form of government and economy. And who are our heroes? A mute woman, a black woman, fish guy, yeah. and a gay man. Right. Outsiders in this world. Outsiders in this world. All of them. And the villain is Strickland, who dreams of driving a beautiful, shiny Cadillac, going home to his two kids and his wife. He carries a baton with an electric cattle prod inside of it. So why set this then? Why not? Why, why couldn't this be set today? Why set this then? And to me, part of the limitations of this storytelling is, especially early on, you see Octavia Spencer's character. Meet her and Eliza as they go about their duties. And Octavia Spencer's talking about her life with her husband and how, you know, he doesn't do this, he doesn't do that, and she feeds him and blah, 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 blah. And, you know, she's literally the character of the smart Alec maid, which is a stereotypical character that we've seen numerous times in culture and storytelling and in movies. And so in that sense, it feels limiting. Like I couldn't help but be like, wow, man, it's like, is that what she's going to do? I want more from this character. I want more from Richard Jenkins' character, Giles. Fishman, like, we don't learn anything about his motivations. Yeah, I mean, I think it's worth, like, running through those four core characters quickly to explore sure. that idea. Because, like, on the one hand, it is important to 
acknowledge and applaud that there's real power in those yes. archetypes and that choosing to give those particular characters and those particular people who are existing in that point in time the center stage to explore their lives right. is wonderful. The flip side is that if you don't explore those lives fully, right. there's a real limit to what you feel like you've gained, to what insights the movie has provided you. And so you just spoke about Zelda. She has a lot of zingers in the movie. Zingers. And they're used heavily in the trailer, yeah. and you sort of get a sense of how the character is going to be used. And, you know, she's got that one moment with Eliza in the elevator where she turns to her and said, you know, that's good, looking like you don't know anything. And it's like, on the one hand, right. genuinely funny moment in the movie. Yeah. On the other hand, what does that represent? Yeah. Something that is actually, like, on a meta level, right. problematic. Right. Acknowledging or leaning into the fact that people who are around these characters in the world that they're occupying don't take them seriously. Right. Like, Fish Guy, you mentioned. We actually don't ever learn, like, anything, anything. about him. You know, is he actually a god? Like, it's set up to be a punchline at yeah. the end when Strickland says it right before his death. But is that true? Right. Are his advances, his ability to heal, is that godliness? Is it science? You know, how does his magic actually work? And also, how is he thinking about his relationship right. with What does Eliza? he think is happening? We don't know. Right. And there's that heartbreaking moment where when she finally gets him down to the docks, he's like, oh, you're not coming with me. Right. And it's effective emotionally, but it also forces you to pause and say, they never had like a conversation about this. What he wanted wasn't really a part of the discussion here. And it's an overly simplified thing to point to, but like he doesn't have a name, yeah. right? It's the asset. The amphibian man is what he's listed <laughs> as on IMDb. Who is he? Especially if the point or one of the points is to think about him like you would a human right. being and to value his life and his worth just as heavily, it becomes harder to do that if he's not fully humanized. Right. And we're never given a chance to understand him. Right. He just exists as this force of nature, essentially. In bed. Well, well in the in water. The, in, in the, the water. bathroom, <laughs> primarily. I found myself, you know, just wanting to know how was he worshipped like a god? How did the human beings around where he was captured treat him? How did he perceive that relationship? How was he captured? How did the Americans find out about him? Even the healing, his ability to heal, which he essentially like wipes, I don't know if it's like some kind of oils that he has on his skin or just smooths his hand over an injured part of his body and it heals. Even that felt very tacked on, like all of a sudden, right. like just, oh, so why do they even want to kill this guy? Right. Strickland shoots him yeah. multiple times. He's able to heal from that. Does that mean he's actually immortal? Yeah. Is there something that could kill him? Is it just being out of the water? So, yeah. like, is it environmental? Is right. there something that man could do to him to actually eliminate him? And then this extends even to Eliza. Like, how did she really get those scars? Right. It's a tossed away line from Strickland. She was found by a river with scars on her neck. Right. And Strickland, who is not somebody that the audience is supposed to trust, he's right. the one who says, oh, voice box. Right. You know, he's connecting the dots for us, but is that what happened? Right. What is her background? How did she wind up living in this place? How did she wind up performing this type of work? How did she and Giles befriend each other? Is it right. literally just because they're like next door to each other? Was it happenstance? Is yeah. there something more there? Like, how did she decide every day that she was going to masturbate in a bathtub to an egg timer? <laughs> These are things and patterns and rhythms in Spoiler. her life. That I would like to know more about. It's the first two minutes of the movie. I was just like interested, so I Googled a random fairy tale. Here's the first paragraph of Rumpelstiltskin, Brothers Grimm fairy tale. Once there was a miller who was poor, but who had a beautiful daughter. Now it happened that he had to go to speak to the king, and in order to make himself appear important, he said to him, 
I have a daughter who can spin straw into gold. No names. Right. A daughter. A miller. Why does he have to go to see the king? No idea. This is the style of storytelling that Del Toro is going for, and it broadly works. But when you add the adult themes into it, that complexity, racial politics, society at large, sexual content, it's hard not to want to find more complexity to these characters. Right. Like, we know that Eliza is lonely. Yeah. We know that she feels like other people think that she is different and right. that Zelda and Giles are the only people who accept her and understand her. And the part, a huge part of what draws her to Fish Guy is... Fishman? <laughs> fish dude? <laughs> boy fish? Her boy fish? I like boy fish. Yeah. That's, that's nice. Is that he's the same, is yeah. that other people perceive him in the same way. And we understand that, but we don't really understand everything in her life that led her to that point, right. that put her in the position to perceive things this way. You know, there's the beautiful moment in the film where she is signing to Giles mm. and trying to explain right. her thoughts and feelings. Yeah. And Giles is, is speaking what she's signing aloud, and he's saying from her, when he looks at me, he being boyfish. Boyfish. <laughs> With those beautiful irises of his. Huge. <laughs> huge. Huge irises. wonder what else he has that's huge. Again, I wish we had more information. Is it a hinged compartment? <laughs> what are we looking at Does it here? open like a gill? Yeah, what is happening? The way he looks at me. He does not know what I lack or how I am incomplete. He sees me for what I am as I am. That is a beautiful idea. It is, again, interesting how these quotes, how these dialogues also speak for the audience. We don't fully know either. And there's beauty in that, but there's also a storytelling limitation. Yeah. Giles, for yes. instance. We meet him. Cat he, owner. Allegedly cat lover. Definitely <laughs> a cat owner. When we meet him, he is holed up in his apartment. He's doing freelance artwork because he lost his job in an advertising agency. How did he lose a job? When did he start losing his hair? When did he begin collecting cats? We know that he doesn't think that he can live his life. He can't, certainly not in 1960s America. We see that in a scene at this pie shop where he goes, and he's been going to this pie shop for a while, yeah. striking up a conversation with the manager. And at one point, the manager comes out and is like, here's the slice of pie on the house. A vile pie, it's by disgusting the way. disgusting pie. And, you know, they strike up a conversation having a really like a heartfelt conversation and Giles puts his hand on the man's hand and the man I'd recoils. Like to get to know you better. Right, the man recoils and there's that hint edge of something violent could happen and then the manager's like, I think you should leave right. and never come back. So we know these things about him, but what else? Why, like the point you made about the relationship he has with Eliza is, is a great one. How do they even know each other? Right. We know that she feels alone, but mm -hmm. we don't fully understand why and we know that he is full of regret, Yeah, but we don't, totally understand what specifically, again, we understand generally, but what specifically is fueling that regret? There's that great exchange. I love this. Where he says, you know, oh God. He's got his toupee on, we should say. And he says, oh God, to be young and beautiful, if I could go back to when I was 18, I didn't know anything about anything. I'd give myself a bit of advice. And Eliza in sign language asks, what would you say? Right. I would say, take better care of your teeth and fuck a lot more. <laughs> Oh, no, no. That's very good advice. I agree. <laughs> I, listen, you need teeth. Great job, Giles. Eating is important. Yeah. And, you know. <laughs> <laughs> Eliza certainly <laughs> discovered the value of the other advice. Yeah, she really did. She really did. Though I will say, I don't know what, like, caliber of tooth you need if you're only going to eat 
shitty key lime pie. Well, I should say about a fish man's teeth now. Not really he, eating it. It's just right. all in his fridge. Though, fish so. man seemed to have a kind like a two rows of teeth on each side. It was, that was a little tough for me, the teeth of the fish man. What about the claws? The claws were tough. Also, when he's enraged or scared or whatever, his gills kind of flare yeah. in a manner that is truly alarming. What else on his body do you think flares when he's... We don't have enough information about this. Again, <laughs> we do not know where the stuff comes from. He's very flat down there, as Zelda mentions. Like the numb mounds in USS Callister. There's no mound, even. It's a plane. It's a flat plane. If you got to level Kendall. out... Yeah, if you got to level out, that little bubble would be right in the middle of the level. There's nothing there. Where's it coming from? I'm glad that you... Even though we haven't been able to answer that mystery, I'm glad that you read the opening to Rumpelstiltskin. Because let's actually consider the opening to this movie. Yes. Think about this monologue. It's Giles setting up this entire story, this world, this water world that we're moving into. I actually thought, by the way, because another thing that you had primed me for was that the movie opens with some passionate masturbation. I thought it was literally going to be the first scene. Well, I mean, it's like three minutes it's, into the movie. It's three minutes. It's really quick. <laughs> yeah. But I was like racing for you it know, immediately. It's so it like, <laughs> The credits come <laughs> yeah. up and it's just like boom. And specifically because I entered the theater and the first thing I see is in the front row, a mother and her young teenage son. And nothing better. I slacked you and our producers, Jason Cahill and Isaac yeah. Lee immediately. And I said, guys, I, I sort of feel, you know, knowing what I know about this film, which is frantic masturbation <laughs> and fish sex, I feel compelled to issue a warning, but I did not. And I couldn't see. He's like, they guys, to get the out of here! Listen, yeah. couldn't see how they uh, how they responded. La- have you seen Last Jedi yet? <laughs> That's good. I'm not saying this isn't good, but I'm just saying the movie needed a binge mode style disclaimer. Might need I think. to split up. But so the way it actually opens is yeah. we enter into this water world, the apartment filled with water, yeah. and Eliza beautiful floats, opening, gorgeous beautiful. Eliza floating, and all of their possessions floating, and Giles's voice. He says, "If I spoke about it, if I did, what would I tell you?" I wonder, would I tell you about the time? It happened a long time ago, it seems, in the last days of a fair prince's reign. Who is the fair prince? File that one away. Well, after. (laughs) Or would I tell you about the place? A small city near the coast, but far from everything else. Baltimore! Give me some crab chips and burger cookies right fucking now. Or, and this is the key point right here, this line, or, I don't know, would I tell you about her, the princess without voice? Or perhaps I would just warn you about the truth of these facts and the tale of love and loss and the monster who tried to destroy it all. Think about that. Yeah. Or, I don't know, would I tell you about her, question mark. Right. Who yes. the people are is not the point. It's about the tale of love and that's loss. Right. And that's beautiful. And that's sweet and compelling and it's actually amazing in two hours to get us to fully emotionally invest in a woman and her fish boy but the story is not about her or him and right Right. from the beginning we're actually told that it's not supposed to be yes who is the fair it's got to be jfk right that is so weird do we know exactly when in the 60s no but they were talking about how oh the russians put a dog into space so it does kind of match up I like to think that it's the beginning of a fair prince's reign. You know, Jim Palmer was just taking the mound for the O's in 65. <laughs> so that's that's uh, that's what I'm going to choose to focus on. We might not have all the specifics. Right. But what we do have in abundance, 
Symbolism. So much. Allegories. Yes. And this is quite well handled and quite compelling. For instance, when Strickland is searching for the creature, searching for Eliza, he bursts into Zelda's apartment she shares with her husband, and he threatens them. He begins to tell them the story of Samson and Delilah about how Delilah, this wicked woman, tempted Samson, got him to fall asleep, cut his hair, which was the source of his power. It's essentially a story about a woman who weakens a man. Fatally, it seems, until the, until the last moment when God bestows upon him his strength one last time. And Strickland says at another point about the creature, we're created in the Lord's image. You don't think that indicating the creature. Right. You don't think that's what the Lord looks like, do you? And then there's, so the fish guy bites off Strickland's fingers at one point. They're reattached. And Strickland spends much of the movie with these rotting fingers blackened on, on his- Disgusting. They you know, stink. They stay. There's pus coming out of them. He's literally rotting. He's yes. rotting. And at that same moment in the plot, Fish Guy is also sort of starting to decay. You know, that's when Eliza begins to get very concerned. She's right. rubbing her hands over his body. Yes. Oh, over his body. <laughs> and his scales, his scales are coming that was off. sad. And there is something, <laughs> there's something about that. <laughs> The parallelism of that imagery where Strickland and his prey are both sort of decaying in tandem, but ultimately that means very different things for them. That path leads them to different places. There's also, you know, Giles being turned away from a lunch counter. That is a powerful image from this time in American history. And the same pie shop employee who turns him away has just turned an African-American couple who entered away. There is Strickland carrying the baton, the shoe polish, and the Cinderella slippers that she has. We were both talking about this movie, and we were talking about how, you know, when we first read Lord of the Flies in English class, that was really, for both of us, like the first gateway into a piece of literature as symbolism. Yes. What does the conch symbolize? Right. What kind of character is Piggy? What is happening when the boys hunt the pig and stab it with their spears? Right. Simon as the Christ figure. Yes. Like, man, that was a great class because that was yes. a time when I was like, oh, wow. It changed the way I read stories. Me too. And it's interesting engaging with this movie because there's this weird discordance because on the one hand, the storytelling style is something like this is how you teach kids how to love story. But on the other hand, complex themes, adult themes, really stuff that deserves nuance. Does it always work? No, but there is a power to this type of storytelling. Yeah, I think there's something particularly powerful about the symbolism of silence in this film. You know, we have on the one hand a character like Strickland who is literally covering his wife's mouth during sex. Not only covering it, but covering it with his bleeding, filthy hand. Michael Shannon is terrifying in this movie. This character reminds me a lot of his character from Boardwalk Empire, Nelson Van Alden, the overt religious guidance that is sort of ruling his life. That's festered in some kind of dark way. Yes. To take that, a man who is saying, I want you silent. And then to have our primary heroine, Eliza, literally be without a voice. And to give us a scene where Strickland is saying to her, I like that you're quiet. Right. And to spin that on its head by allowing her to find strength and Mm -hmm. courage in her silence and to 
turn to Fish Guy, to find the courage to say to Giles, we have to do something here. We have to intervene. We have to act. I love him, and that's part of it, sure. Yeah. But also, we're not human right. if we don't do this. That's right. We're not worth the damn if right. we don't try to help somebody else. And the fact that their silence, that their inability to communicate with other people allows them to find such comfort in their ability to communicate with each other, that's what gives her the strength yes. and the courage to act when that's the thing that Strickland wants to prey on. That's really awesome and really well handled in the film. Let's talk about uh, fish fucking. Would love to. As we have mentioned <laughs> roughly 250 times in this podcast, there are themes of overt sexuality. There's masturbation. There is sex. The egg timer. Yeah. So we should say that one of the ways that Eliza bonds with the creature early on, she feeds him eggs. Hard-boiled eggs. He's on a hard-boiled egg diet and she's on a fish stick diet. Those eggs, by the way, boiling as she masturbates in the bathroom. <laughs> she has an efficient routine yes. to get ready for work. And then they make love twice. I have to say. Yeah. Maybe just because I had heard so oh. much <laughs> from you and others about the fish fucking. Oh. <laughs> it's not accurate to say that I was let down, but I was expecting something. Right. You were expecting to see scaly pelvic thrusts. I was. And... Especially when we get that first masturbation scene so early into the movie. Yeah, it's full frontal. Full frontal. She's got the leg cocked up over the side of the bathtub. Rapid pace. Rapid pace. She's like, the other leg is like braced against the inside of the tub to get the leverage. And then with Eliza and Fish Guy, it's, you know, you get like this beautiful Very embrace sp- when yeah. they fill the, right. the bathroom with water, but you don't actually see the act itself. Yeah. I was shocked. I thought we were going to see the act itself. I'm not even sure what you rate that. Movie. What is what is the MPAA give give a movie like that? Questions. Yes. That are raised from watching this movie as Milton shifts position at the fervent fish sex talk. Can we have relationships with nature, with the natural world that are totally benign? There's a moment in this movie where fish guy is hungry, wanders out of the bathtub. Giles is asleep. He was supposed to be watching. He falls asleep, and fish guy finds one of Giles's cat friends, and he ends up eating it. Giles comes out and says, what are you doing? Fish guy runs out, and in the course of running out and brushing past Giles, he scratches him with his claws. I really, not necessarily the cat murder, but I re- that scene was interesting to me because it did bring up, like, this is something from the natural world. This is not a human being. This is not, this is something else. This is, yes, part of the earth, but dangerous in its own way. We don't really understand what it is. Can human beings have a relationship with nature that's beneficial without being exploitive? And I think that is one of the themes that was lightly touched on by this movie, but really wasn't explored in in any kind of way. Right, and even when he comes back into the apartment, he's just kind of hanging with the cats. Right. And so you're supposed to assume that he's been told that that behavior was wrong. Right. And that he has instantly adapted, and obviously— as, you know, Dimitri's character reinforces consistently throughout the film, he's capable of language. He's capable of communicating. He's highly intelligent. So we understand that he would be able to adjust his behavior, but it's not totally clear to us what transpired. How does a lesson just trump instinct? Right. That's something that is never really discussed. Is the act of feeding him and playing music for him, does it somehow tame him? How intelligent is he? How self-aware is he? These questions remain unanswered. And and 
more broadly, what place does a story like this have today? What place does fairy tale storytelling have in the modern world? I'm not sure. You know, it's like fairy tales exist to teach a lesson, to teach a moral, to teach a parable. We live in a world where the need for that hasn't gone away. But does this style of storytelling necessarily address all the needs that people have for a story, specifically one that's so adult? Not sure. I think the modern audience demands a lot out of yeah. a story, and I think fairy tales are also universal and eternal. So it'll be interesting to see how people continue to adapt and to yeah. make the sort of universal general motifs and archetypes of a fairy tale apply to the present day. Yeah. We'll be right back after a quick break for a word from our sponsor. Yo, real quick! We just want to chat about finish line at Macy's. Macy's! Yeah! They have the latest looks. Yes. From the hottest brands. Nike, Adidas, Skechers, Skechers. and Converse. Converse. Just to name a few. Gyvon. Converse. <laughs> you can always find perfect pair. That's right. To take to the gym, should you choose to spend right. your time at the gym. Or wear around town, should you choose to leave your home. These shoes will stay comfortable long after your kids outgrow them. Get shoes for yourself. Yes. Get shoes for your significant other. Yes. Get shoes for your podcast partner. Yes. Get shoes for your children. Yeah. All in one place. That's right. You don't have to go to a whole bunch of different stores shopping for shoes. Why would you do it? Why would you do it, guys? Right now. Yes. Macy's finish line. Having end of season sale with deals up to 65% off which is just crazy awesome crazy crazy awesome awesome go check out your nearest Macy's store to see that crazy awesomeness for yourself you have to or go to macy's.com slash finish line Jason yes it's not even human but if we do nothing neither are we that's right so please do something Please assemble the conclave and head to the Citadel or, you know, to assemble a scientific team at a secret government laboratory in Baltimore. Again, the steamed crabs are delicious. Not so good at this time of year, actually. Don't eat those in front of Fishman. Don't eat them in front of Fishman. Good point. The lobster, the (laughs) lobster moment was really tough. Teach us everything we need to know about Guillermo del Toro's use of the monster. This past Sunday, Guillermo del Toro accepted the 2018 Best Director Golden Globe for The Shape of Water, and he said in his acceptance speech, Since childhood, I've been faithful to monsters. I have been saved and absolved by them. Monsters, I believe, are patron saints of our blissful imperfection. For 25 years, I have handcrafted very strange little tales. In three precise instances, these strange stories have saved my life. Once with The Devil's Backbone, once with Pan's Labyrinth, and now with The Shape of Water. Because as directors... These things are not just entries in a filmography. We have made a deal with a particularly inefficient devil that trades three years of our lives for one entry on IMDb. And these things are biography. They are alive. Imagine if that one entry on IMDb just said, Amphibian Man. (laughs) Come on. Come on, Guillermo. Del Toro's filmography is defined by a fetish for clockwork mechanisms, an interest in exploring subterranean spaces, and of course, a love and a deep empathy for the monster. Del Toro's monsters, even the ones he didn't create, are often hideous, disturbing, and dangerous. But they're also misunderstood, magical, and often trapped between worlds, struggling against their own natures. I'm going to talk about just a few of the monsters from some of Del Toro's films. There's Blade Two, Blade the Daywalker, who has the strengths of a vampire, but none of the weaknesses. The interesting thing about Blade Two is 
with a script by David Goyer, who would write a lot of the DC comic movies that you've seen, is the vampires become prey. Because of this disease that's running through the vampire community, vampires are turning into these creatures called reapers that actually feed on vampires. And he said about about the reapers, the idea I had for the reapers was that their skin would be really translucent and you could see all the veins in their skin. This comes from my fixation with a movie Beneath the Planet of the Apes. Turning predators into prey in this way allows the audience to empathize with the vampires in, in really interesting ways. And also, all throughout this movie, you find images and themes that appear in Shape of Water. In this film, the goggles worn by the Blood Pack, which is this like vampire special forces group, really look like the eyes of the amphibian fish man. And there's Hellboy and Hellboy 2, one of del Toro's favorite themes. It's one we love too, is the struggle between destiny and agency, nature and nurture. Hellboy was adapted from Mike Mignola's comic book creation. If you can pick up the omnibus and the graphic novels, I highly recommend them. So Hellboy is the son of the demon Azale and a human witch, Sarah Hughes. And in the dying days of World War II, Nazis summon Hellboy to Earth in hopes that his magic could help turn the tide. But the Allies stop this. They capture him. And he's raised as a humanist, essentially. He doesn't want to turn evil. He sands down his horns. He smokes cigarettes. And he just wants to have a girlfriend. I can't wait for Hopper to be Hellboy, by the way. Extremely into this. I'm very, very into this. And as we mentioned at the top of this, one of the characters from the Hellboy series, Abe Sapien, one of Hellboy's friends, is an ichthyosapien, a human-amphibian hybrid. Clear precursor to the asset. Fishman! Fishman. Then there's Pan's Labyrinth. Del Toro's masterpiece tells the story of Princess Moana, the daughter of the king of the underworld. After losing her memories above ground, she becomes a human and dies. Her father, believing her spirit will someday return, constructs a labyrinth to guide her home. And then who will guide her home is this creature called the fawn, this pale humanoid creature with with wide eyes, long stringy hair, and, and the horns of a ram. He appears to a girl, Ophelia, who he believes to be the reincarnation of Juana, and he guides her to the labyrinth, helps her with the tasks that will return her to the underworld. Del Toro describes the fawn as, quote, a creature that is neither good or evil, like nature, a character there to be witness and shepherd to her, Ophelia, in her right of patches. But he has no agenda. He doesn't care if she dies or lives. Now, Contrast this with Eliza, quote, the princess without a voice who we know was found next to a canal in her childhood. Very similar themes here. And then Pacific Rim, in many ways, the most simplistic del Toro movie that actually has some fascinating ideas. The the top narration of that movie, as you're seeing scenes of how humanity fought the kaiju, you hear this. To fight monsters, we created monsters of our own. The Jaeger program was born and humanity created these giant robots that humans control. And therein is a really fascinating idea that in order to strike down an enemy, oftentimes you become that enemy in ways that you probably don't want to admit. Now, yes. when Fish Guy looks at me, he does not know I am incomplete. He doesn't know. It's beautiful. He sees me as I am. And then his hatch opens and <laughs> the thing comes out. And it's beautiful. So let's find more of that beauty. Let's bathe in the light of the seven by sharing seven of our favorite human slash non-human romantic couplings. Oh, boy. From other stories. Spoiler alert. By the way, guys, we're going to spoil a bunch of stories uh, with some of these details here. Can you spoil love? Really? Uh, <laughs> still lightning round style. Here we go. You go first. I mean, where to even begin? There are so many possibilities. Feel compelled to just state and state and state again. That's right. Not a comprehensive list. No. You know, feel free to tweet your favorites at Absolutely. us. But if we didn't mention your favorite, that doesn't mean we don't acknowledge it. These are That's just right. seven of our favorites. That's and, right. you know, there are a lot. Number one, for me, Gaius Baltar yeah, and man. Six. 
from Battlestar Galactica. It's a great relationship. Don't want to overstate things. No. But Gaius kind of lets his fish stick uh, destroy (laughs) the entire universe. And six is a big driving force in why that happened. Extremely driving force. It's such an interesting relationship, as all of the Cylon-human relationships in the show are, because, of course, one of the core questions that Battlestar poses is, what is humanity? And when a Cylon, who will be belittled by enemies by having the word toaster, you know, thrown at it, you used to be a robot just because you're wearing a human skin doesn't make you a person. When that Cylon is in a relationship, a sexual, loving relationship with a human being. A lot of massage, a lot of shoulder rubs going on. A lot of shoulder rubs. You're forced to really wrestle with that question of what humanity is and what it can or should be. The Metamorph Magus, Nymphadora Tonks, a.k.a. Osha, and Werewolf Remus Lupin. One of my favorite professors at Hogwarts, a.k.a. Mooney. It was a a torrid and intense and very tragic love affair. Spoiler alert for Jason Cahill. (laughs) (laughs) Big time. Didn't even think about what a gigantic spoiler alert that is. Sorry. (laughs) Really a star-crossed love. And I'll say that I'm just happy they went together. That's it. Spoiler alert again for Jason (laughs) Cahill. Heartbreaking. <laughs> that is, uh, that's a beautiful one. Their time together was far too brief in part extremely because- Extremely brief. Extremely intense. Lupin's anxiety about being a werewolf and yes. what that represents. Ultimate outsider, even amongst a community of outsiders. They could have been together for so much longer if yeah. that hadn't held them back. Speaking of werewolf love, just this is not on the list, but I feel compelled to quickly tack on here. Josh and Nora from Being Human mm. did not ultimately consider them eligible for this list because, again, spoiler alert, she becomes a werewolf after he accidentally turns her into one, which right. is one of the risks of dating a werewolf. But at the beginning of their relationship, she's human. He's yes. a werewolf, and he is tortured by fear over what he could do to her, but he's also driven fully by how much he loves her, and that contrast is is really gripping. Number three, Lord of the Rings. Great movie. Aragorn. Great story, great book. And Arwen. I always really loved what it represented, which is the questions that you have to ask yourself when you're choosing to be with someone in life. And for her, that question is literally the biggest it could be. Right. What is more important? My family, my people. Right. Immortality. Pretty good. Which she has. Or being with the guy she loves, yeah. who is a mortal man with a clicking, ticking tack. None of those are words. <laughs> One ticking <day>. clock. <laughs> An egg timer of his own. Yes. And to have to choose yeah. between those different facets of your that life. That speech her father gives her, telling uh, her, uh, you will grow old. You will watch him die. Oof. Starman and Jenny from the movie Starman. So Starman is, for those of you who haven't seen it, great Jeff Bridges vehicle. It's like E.T. but adult and if Elliot was a woman who falls in love with E.T. So Starman comes to Earth, (laughs) takes on the form of Jenny's recently deceased husband, and together they set out on a road trip to allow him to go to the place where he can get picked up and go home. And it's a beautiful movie. There's some really moving imagery. At one point, a starman encounters a deer that is tied to the hood of a car after a hunting thing outside of a diner, and he doesn't understand this. And he just puts his hands on it, brings it back to life, and the deer runs off. Great movie. You would enjoy it. Sounds wonderful. Can't wait to see it. I'm just going to keep sneaking in ones that aren't on our list. When you said 
you know, touching something and bringing it back to yes. life. I thought of Ned and Chuck from oh. Pushing Daisies. Now, I don't know if that is, again, eligible for the list because yeah. technically Chuck is alive list. and human, but right. I think you could, if you wanted to, you could make the case that she's kind of, in essence, a zombie. Right. So I think it counts. As you know, I love Lee Pace. Number five, from the movie Her. Yes. Theodore and Samantha. Now, this is a cool idea. It's a cool idea. What if you fell in love with your AI? It'll what happen. if you fell in love not even with... A bit of technology that was made to look right. like a human, but no, just with a voice. A voice, a personality, an algorithm that it's is an made, idea. That's it. But think about how we use technology today. You know, this is what compels us so much about the best Black Mirror episodes. This tech is in some ways closer to you than anything in your life, certainly than many people in your life. And when that tech can allow you to tap into something yeah. deep and pure about yourself and your existence, it is kind of mesmerizing and then when it turns and is corrupted and is ripped away with from you in some way or when you realize that you can't actually have what you want that this isn't really the vessel to the fulfillment that you need it is drink haunting <laughs> my real answer here for number six is beast and bell from beauty and the beast but it's too obvious you gotta, you gotta get that on the list though it's right? on the list but it's too obvious i want to talk about alice and quentin from the magicians fucking as foxes in the arctic now yes as you know one of my favorite scenes ever hold on they are both human turned into foxes by right. magic yeah that said the relationship they then carry on afterwards is heavily influenced by their experience as foxes who That's had right. sex. We've got fish fucking, we've got fox fucking. That's, That's right. lingering and informing their actions long The magician's after. back this week, season three, by the way. Oh, boy. I need to catch up on that. But yes, also, you know, shouts to Beauty and the Beast. Yeah. Number seven, uh, we would be remiss, guys, if we did not just uh, raise a glass yes. full of sour goat's milk mm. to Tormund and his pre-Brienne love. <laughs> Sheila the bear. With her claws, she ripped her back with my claws and her passion dug her fangs into my shoulder. The, the greasiness of her, it was delicious. I love to dive into her. It's like being devoured by her, but gentle also, gentle. I was thinking of Tormund's claw analysis when seeing Fish Guy's claws. I was yes. like, this is a hazard. It is this truly is a dangerous. hazard. I mean, luckily, he uses them to kill Strickland. Luckily, he can heal you also. <sighs> I wonder what uh, healing properties his other fluids have. Oh, my God. <laughs> <laughs> Mel, you deliver. That's what you do. You deliver, right? Right? Yeah. Champions deliver, too. And every episode, we're going to honor the person or idea that compelled us the most. And this week, we're awarding our champion's purse, which is stuffed with boiled eggs. Two. Fish guy. Fish man? Boy fish? Fish Am dude? Amphibian? Fish man? Bro fish? Listen, he... He got it in. He got it in. We don't know what it is so, uh, or how he got it in, but he got it in, guys. And he didn't just get it in in the utilitarian sense of he got it in, you know, in and out. Eliza is absolutely beaming the next day. Like, woo! Yeah, he's advanced. And to the point where Zelda's like, damn, fishman? Zelda quickly accepts the fact that yeah, Eliza like, fucked the fish guy. You fucked the fish guy? Really quickly <laughs> accepts the fact that Eliza fucked the fish guy. Oh, hold up. Did you fuck the fish guy? 
Did you fuck the fish guy? Like, what is their standard water cooler conversation in that office? I it's, we've seen it's a I, lot about mopping up piss. I think it's I finding think it's, floating fingers. I think it's how, floating in blood. I might add. I think it's how obvious it is on Eliza's face, on her very being, on her every inch of her body. How obvious it is just from looking at her that fish guy can deal that good dick. <laughs> I think that's why <laughs> Zelda just accepts it. Oh, my God. <laughs> yeah, so he got it in. He escaped from the facility with some help, got back to the ocean, and he brought his princess, Eliza, with him. He healed her? That's right. We don't really know what world or type of existence he's bringing her to, right. but he healed her and kept them together. Yes. That's very satisfying when he slashes Strickland's throat. It is Because, of course, then Strickland Didn't is- Didn't know what you were going to say, but yes, it is. that was satisfying. <laughs> Strickland is silenced, too, in that yeah. moment, which is a poetic and fitting bit of role reversal there. Most importantly, I think we can agree, Fish Guy learns to respect and love cats. That's right. That's the, he fe- you the chief takeaway. Somehow sense that he- was not going to do it again, and he felt kind of bad. Yes. And he, again, we don't know, but we, he might actually be a god. Yeah. So that's a win. That's cool. I would like to say, though, just for the record, that while Fish Guy is officially receiving the champion's purse, Eliza also won. Yes. Huge win for Eliza, who, you know, was not a prisoner in the, like, literal sense, but was very much a prisoner in her life, trapped and feeling alone and misunderstood by all but two people. Yeah. And for her to find... Not only love and solace and understanding, but literally her voice, that's a major win too. Maybe they're co-champions. Yep. All right, guys. We don't want an intricate, beautiful thing destroyed. No. So it's time to wrap up this podcast. We hope that you had as much fun as we did today and that you are as excited as we are for Binge Mode Harry Potter. Dun, dun, dun. Coming this spring. We also hope again that you will be joining us at Largo yes. on January 24th for the Binge Mode Rewatchables High School Football Mashup Live event. Yeah. Buy your tickets now. We hope, of course, that you will be joining us next Thursday for the newest installment of Binge Mode Weekly. That's right. Until then, remember, son, unfuck this mess. Eliza, did you fuck the fish man? Did you? How does, he doesn't even have any, how, what is that? What are you doing there? Is that a sliding door opening? Is that a man coming out of an airplane? No, but what, really, what is that? Is that a piston? Hey, right, listen, hey, as long as you're happy. <laughs> <laughs>